Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Nico and I chat with Ulrich Habeck, an applied cryptographer at Polygon Labs. We talk about his journey into applied ZK cryptography from teaching to becoming a full-time practitioner. Through this story, we learn about the contributions he's made to the field in the form of many write-ups and manuscripts, like the ones on Fry and Breakdown. We also discuss how he found new breakthroughs with his work on multivariate lookups in the form of logup and on logarithmic derivative lookups using GKR. We also talk about his work at Polygon Labs on Starks over finite fields. Now, before we kick off, I want to let you know about our upcoming multi-week virtual event, ZK Hack 4. Starting on January 16th and running until February 6th, 2024, we will be hosting weekly workshops with top teams in ZK, showcasing the state of the art in tooling for ZK builders. Every week, we also host a ZK puzzle hacking competition. In it, we share a ZK system that has something wrong with it. You are meant to find the bug and hack the protocol. The fastest hacker will make their way to the top of the ZK Hack leaderboard. There you can find prizes and glory. Now this is our fourth time running this event series. The ZK Hack online series is not a hackathon, but rather it's a chance to learn the latest in ZK tools with members of the ZK Hack community, as well as learn the intricacies of ZK security through the puzzle hacking competition. And because it runs over a few weeks, Participants often make friends, find future colleagues or co-founders, and we really get a chance to dive into the ZK world together. The event is free and open to all. I've added the link on our website. Please join the mailing list so that we can let you know when we have more info to share about the event. Also, be sure to join our Discord. That's where all communication around this event will be happening. So yeah, hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Launching soon, Namada's a proof-of-stake L1 blockchain focused on multi-chain asset-agnostic privacy via a unified set. Namada is natively interoperable with fast finality chains via IBC and with Ethereum using a trust-minimized bridge. Any compatible assets from these ecosystems, whether fungible or non-fungible, can join Namada's unified shielded set, effectively erasing the fragmentation of privacy sets that has limited multi-chain privacy guarantees in the past. By remaining within the shielded set, users can utilize shielded actions to engage privately with applications on various chains, including Ethereum, Osmosis, and Celestia, that are not natively private. Namada's unique incentivization is embodied in its shielded set rewards. These rewards function as a bootstrapping tool, rewarding multi-chain users who enhance the overall privacy of Namada participants. Follow Namada on Twitter, at Namada, for more information, and join the community on Discord, discord.gg forward slash Namada. And now here's our episode. Today we're here with Ulrich Habeck, an applied cryptographer at Polygon Labs. Welcome to the show, Ulrich. Hi, thanks for having me. And Nico is the co-host for this one. Hey, Nico. Hey, Anna. Hey, Ulrich. So today's interview came about, Paul from Risk Zero had suggested bringing you on, and he wanted to talk about a few things. So I'll just sort of list what his message had said, but... You should cover things like his manuscript on Fry, his work on lookups, logup, and GKR logup, 
as well as the work he's doing on Starks in finite fields that aren't NTT-friendly. Now, I think we may get into more than just this, but here's sort of a starting point and a bit of a summary about some of the things we're going to talk about. But first, before we do that, Ulrich, tell us a little bit about what got you started. How did you jump into all of this? Where did I start? So that's a good point. I mean, by, by study, I never studied cryptography. So when I was at university, so I took the chance to dive into cryptography actually by teaching. So I held a teaching position at a applied university of technology. It's called mm. Fachhochschule. Yeah. Uh, for quite a long time. I think it was more than, more than eight years or maybe even 10 years. Can't remember. And that actually the uh, I had quite a lot of freedom because I'm not, I was not under the pressure of doing research. So I could reorient completely. So, and I ran into cryptography because there was a lack of people teaching math and cryptography related stuff. So I really started with the classical wow. primitives like RSA, uh, discrete logarithm problem, all these things. And in the end, I found myself, uh, thanks to a friend of mine, Stefan Krein, I found myself in zero knowledge proofs. Whoa. The classical world of zero knowledge proofs, the schnorr. Mm -hmm. So wait, you started by teaching kind of like technical topics, then discovered cryptography in teaching it. So like you had to learn it to teach it. You, it wasn't like you had learned it in a class and you were reteaching it to someone. Exactly. Actually, what I studied was, I mean, a mixture of, of many things, but I would say it was a lot of probability theory and dynamical systems. That was okay. back then when I did my PhD. But to be frank, I, I never felt at home in this realm. So that, that was probably also the reason why I switched over to a teaching position. Oh, okay. You didn't like being a student in a way. No, it, it's it's not that. It's just like I never found in dynamical system, I, this was not my math. Okay. I don't know. So it just happened that I found myself there. Huh. Uh, and it happened that I stepped out of it. So I'm a late starter, I would say. I probably needed the time to reorient when I was teaching, mm. to find cryptography and to find that I really love it. Cool. And that brought me in the end to classical zero knowledge proofs. What was it about cryptography that you liked? I would say it's, is it the right word in English? Versatility? Versatility? Yeah. Hmm. It's so manifold from the type of math you meet. Ah. I mean, you can start off uh, with all the statistics that's needed for symmetric cryptanalysis. You, you can go further to all these number theoretic constructions behind public key crypto. And even then, you know, all these different primitives starting from elliptic curves or just ordinary cyclic groups with a hard discrete logarithm problem up to lattices to... Uh, it's all the different math you meet in crypto. It's a mixture of all different things. You can position yourself where you feel comfortable. Mm. And the second thing that I missed actually in my PhD studies and what I had to do previously is its immediate usefulness in practice. Mm -hmm. And that's actually also the thing that drove me in the end to industry. Actually, to your first point, something funny that I've noticed in sort of the history of, of cryptography is how once in a while you have ideas that aren't new to math at all, but that get injected into cryptography. And suddenly we have like a whole new field of cryptography that shows up. What are you thinking? Like elliptic curve cryptography, for example. Uh. Right? Mm, yeah, I think it was minutes, no? In the 90s with the cryptanalysis, actually. Oh, I wouldn't know. Same thing with pairings, you know, later on. 
Ah, uh, sorry, sorry. Y yeah, yeah, yeah. Pairings came with script analysis of the mm -hmm. discrete logarithm problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was Menet says who, who was one of the driving forces of using elliptic curves as the discrete logarithm structures, let's say. So Ulrich, what was your first like move into working in our industry? Where did you first find yourself after being a teacher? Uh, actually, quite randomly at the first position that I just found. <laughs> and that was okay. here in Milano, where I'm still based. Ah. It was at Horizon Labs, mm -hmm. uh, the engineering arm of the Zen Foundation, Zen Cryptocurrency. Yeah. Actually, when I was looking into your background, I saw that you had worked at Horizon. I had Alberto on the show, I think, a, two I years ago. Yeah. So I were you there? I think it's longer than two years ago, but I remember <laughs> that at the time I was already there. What were you doing there? What kind of focus did you have? Actually, that was perfect, perfect position for myself to learn snarks. Ah. So what I did essentially is learning snarks, first of all, learning all the technical subtleties of proof recursion in the context of aggregation scheme, not folding back then, didn't exist, but the mother of folding. Mm. And besides that, I made Marlin the proof system Marlin recursion friendly, so to speak. But it was just a, it was just an exercise in the end with all the details you need in recursion. Hmm. And besides that, uh, of course, it was a lot of instructing and priming the developers of our team. I see. So you did continue almost in that educational side of things. You're still learning and teaching. It had also an educational aspect, but let's say. It was more about learning, actually. Okay. Mm. But actually, you can't separate, never is. Mm. Teaching is learning. Exactly. Yeah. Teaching is an incredibly good way to learn. Really forces you to know what you're talking about. Okay, so after Horizon, you... Or actually, maybe, yeah, just tell me, what kind of work were you working on there? What led you to then switch over to Polygon Labs? So I worked on really the classical, let's say, elliptic curve-based aggregation scheme, Ccash. Uh, pushed off aggregation scheme like recursive proof system, mm -hmm. uh, which we had in mind. And I don't know if it ever came to it. I didn't follow much when I left the company, but the initial idea was to have a full decentralized system of provers, even with an incentivation market, a market that drives a certain incentivation for the provers themselves. So the PCD scheme, or let's say the recursive proof system itself, was not just a linear one, a tree-wise one, dynamically arranged tree-wise one. And yeah, we, we did take over actually everything that Halo 1 did mm. to Marlin in that tree-like setting. And that means you had to think about the subtleties of, let's say, a kind of having flexibility in, in expressiveness. Mm. It means, so we considered like having different base proofs and uh, you have to have a key ring with it. And, uh, and what does that mean if you have a tree-wise recursion with all the subtleties of accumulators or aggregators in the cycle of curve, you know, uh, and non-pairing friendly and deferred arithmetics. And it, it was, to be frank, it was a masterpiece for learning, a pain in the neck, wouldn't recommend. <laughs> so I, I don't envy anyone who has to do with both aggregation, folding and deferred arithmetics, if that's still needed nowadays. It's not needed mm -hmm. anymore, I suppose. But, oh, it's uh, still a thing. 
yeah, yeah. And having, let's say, a flexible topology, a nonlinear topology of the PCD scheme itself, it's a hell of work of engineering, of defining the right data structures. Yeah. In the end, it comes down to define the right structs and the right traits, and it's highly complex, much more complex than uh, with Starks. Did you double into the engineering side? Well, I was influencing a lot, mm -hmm. uh, or let's say I had a lot of exchange with the, our engineers okay. to, to help them define or what I thought is a good notion of uh, our good structs and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At what point did you move over to Polygon Labs? Like, was there a research reason? Was there something that drew you to working on something they were working on? Yeah, how did you make the move? I think one of the main reasons was something that also in the learning process I completely underestimated back then and it was off my radar was the stark side of, of life. Mm -hmm. And that's in particular the feasibility of CKVMs. Mm. And that actually led me to an intermediate step, which wasn't Polygon. I worked for like two months for Orbis before, unfortunately, due to the FTX, they went bankrupt. Ah. So, and Orbis was working on Cardano. Uh, I'm not sure. I hope I don't say anything wrong. It was partially financed by Ardana. One of the co-founders of Ardana founded Orbis. Ardana? Ryan. I don't know if I know this it, it, project. It also, it also went bankrupt a few okay. weeks later after FTX. So I think it was a, a stable coin on Cardano. Okay. But don't ask me. It, it, I, I, I never... Due to time, you know, just two months, three yeah, yeah, months yeah. there. Uh, I never, Sounds like you didn't get that never get a or something. big <laughs> overview of what's happening on Cardano. Okay. So actually that was the minutes because Orbis target was to do a CKVM based second layer or roll up like solution for Cardano. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's how I found myself there. All of a sudden you were kind of playing in the ZKVM land and then FTX happens and the company goes under... Like, I guess at this point, though, you must have been very familiar with the Polygon Zero work. Actually, I was familiar with Polygon Zero's work because Plonky 2 was really uh, hit the scene. Mm. So that was like half a year before I left Horizon Labs. Yeah, especially if you were already looking at recursion, Plonky 2 was a big deal, right? Yeah, it just to me, it was like uh, something that I completely underestimated mm -hmm. when when watching just the papers, you know, if you looked at Aurora or Fractal, you know, yeah. two large proof sizes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't take, that's another thing, people will kill me for that probably, but it's my honest opinion that you can't take any benchmark you didn't do by yourself serious. Agreed. So I just didn't pay much attention on that side, on the Stark side, and then came mm -hmm. Plonky too. And uh, that completely proved myself being fully ignorant, you know, wow. before. Huh. Yeah, so I, I knew the work of Polygon Zero. Beyond that, I learned a lot since since as well as I learned a lot about from, from Ben Sasson's track of work, the mm -hmm. whole Fry thing, starting from Fry, Deep Fry, and, and the Proximity Gaps paper from, what was it, 22, the, la the last one, mm -hmm. the okay. most important one for proof sizes. Got it. And you wrote a very comprehensive summary of exactly that. That brought me that, that summary actually brought me to Orbis, right? So that summary was just an outcome for learning because everybody, I guess everybody who, who went over the track of papers that start off with Fry 
and end up with this, with this proximity gap thing. It's a hard. Uh, oh, it's it's yeah. not not easy read. It's not. It's a hell of a climb. Read. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Are you talking about the fry paper right now? The survey. Yeah, and the line of work that goes with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Ulrich, did you create the summary of the fry low degree test? Is that exactly the that, work that, that you summary produced? is just? Okay. I, I just wrote for myself. Actually, everything that I write is just for myself. Okay. To learn, to clarify my own thoughts. That's that's why and I write. And ePrint is your Google Drive, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Paul actually had suggested we talk about this. He just described as the manuscript on Fry that a lot of people will actually use to learn Fry instead of the original paper. At least if that's what he felt. So yeah, this is even before you joined the Polygon team. Was this also, though, inspired by Plonky 2? Was it like Plonky 2 comes out? It was kicked off. Uh, yeah by proving my ignorance to the stock side Okay. when Plonky 2 came out. Got it. Okay, so Plonky 2 sort of triggered your realization you needed to learn Fry. Yeah, and then this exactly. is your learning Fry. Yeah, cool. so uh, I don't know how useful it is for others. I just really did it only for myself to keep the things clear, to be able in the end to propose concrete parameter setting with a good feeling that they are correct, you know. Cool. So, so not just like picking out some result and two yeah. months later, you don't know anymore what you did. Well, I'm going to add the link to this in the show notes for anyone who wants to see it as well. Why don't we continue, though, with your story? So at this point, you've written this manuscript for, on Fry. I guess you've gotten to know the Polygon Zero team as well, like Plonky 2 had come out. That's happened. Yep. I mean, personally, I was in contact with uh, Daniel from Polygon Zero during my time with Orbis. Okay. Because I was already working on, on logup, uh, on the logarithmic derivative lookup back then. Okay. Which was actually triggered. It's always like you, you see something, you hear something. That was triggered by my first uh, CK summit. I was passively as a listener. It was the CK8, I think, the one in Berlin. Okay. Did you come or did you just watch the videos? I was there. Uh, okay. I was there in person. Nice. But uh, I didn't uh, give a talk or so. Yeah, so yeah. I was just in the audience. It was the first time back then that I was confronted with multilinear proofs. Uh, mm. And I saw uh, Benedict's talk and not just Benedict's, also from William. The talk. So there was there was a track in the big room. There was a track of multivariate prover stuff uh, ending with hyperplonk. Mm -hmm. uh, and just starting thinking about how would I prove hyperplonk? Because uh, Benedict didn't provide all the details, or maybe I didn't understand them <laughs> back yeah. then, you know. Huh. So, uh, so I was just thinking to myself, how could would I do it? And and the main thing is about how would you do the permutation argument for Plonk actually mm -hmm. in the first place? And that brought me to an idea I had even back then at Horizon Labs time, which was just uh, for fun working with logarithmic derivatives. Hmm. formal logarithmic derivatives. And I call it just a salad or mixed collections of IOPs that I just was playing around with a sum check in a different manner. The one that's, uh, that is often referred to just the Plonk way where you have running, mm -hmm. running sums instead of running products. Actually, I want to clarify something. So you're saying you kind of looked at lookup arguments based on the logarithmic derivative, but what were lookup arguments based on before that? Like, I actually don't know the change here. Changes from encoding witness data elements to be looked up as zeros of polynomials to encode them as poles. As poles. Yeah. 
And the funny thing is counting zeros of polynomials is, is much more difficult because it, it's more multiplicative thing. Mm. So it's like a linear factor to the power of something. And it's hard to prove the powers, whereas poles just add up. So multiplicities, they just add up. Okay. And this simple structure is actually the benefit of log up or fluke up, which just came out one week before we published the log up thing, which is the same idea. The same underlying idea, just a different focus. Not hmm. saying that it's the same piece of work, but the same underlying idea. So I'm a little stuck because I don't know what a pole is. And I'm so sorry if this is like something that I should know. But the zeros part I think I got, but I actually don't know what that means. Pole is just the inverse of a linear factor with zero. You can't divide by zero. So if you remember from calculus school, calculus one, you take a point, consider the linear factor that has a zero at the point is x minus that point mm. and then takes it its inverse. Okay. This has exactly a pole of order one because it behaves See. like one over the difference to that point. Okay. Seems like I need to revisit calculus, high school level <laughs> calculus here, but I vaguely remember that maybe. Huh. Yeah, I don't know if this is high school level, but okay. the idea is... Um, <laughs> Yeah, if you have x minus something equals zero, uh, you take one over that and that's it. You now have a pole. The, the okay. something now becomes your pole. And so you were doing the lookup argument based on this pole instead of on over zeros. Where does the idea for this come from? Like, why had the earlier ones not done that? Well, that's what I said before. Uh, one week before, Flukup, which is Kovratovich oh, and, yeah. and Gabison, and I think somebody I know it's just uh, Ariel and, and, and Dimitri who did it, I think, that you did use the same underlying idea. That's why it's called Flukup for fl fractional decomposition. Okay. So huh. it, it's like the analogon. It's uh, from in algebraic geometry, a field that I was back then not very familiar with. But algebraic geometry, you can say a polynomial, you have two types of composition, uh, let's say, in calculus, you take always the composition of polynomials into its its linear factors, into its roots. Uh, whereas in general, you have functions that that are uniquely decomposable using their poles. Mm. It's a fractional decomposition. And actually, I now prefer much more that view instead of the view that brought me to it, which was more the logarithmic derivative. Okay. Huh. So you guys both, like both groups basically came to a very similar like next step. Very similar. At yeah. the so same it, time. it was like Ariel said, oh, he didn't realize that actually you could view it also as logarithmic derivative. Ah. I now changed my mind. My approach to see it actually like a fractional decomposition because it's, it's more nice to talk about you at pose, you know? Mm. Yeah. I guess this is also what I meant earlier with once in a while someone comes up with an idea that we know from math, but we haven't used in cryptography yet. And suddenly you unlock new protocols. Yeah, this, this idea of logarithmic derivatives or fractional decomposition is one of those examples. Yeah, and it's important to point out, uh, so we were not the only one who were thinking in mm -hmm. that direction. Liam Egan, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so he, he actually, I was just not aware of that piece. And I think Ariel back then wasn't aware either. There is something like, is it called Bulletproof Plus, plus or something? Yeah. Uh, a publication of his where he already was using logarithmic derivatives, mm. uh, not fully formalized, but he was using it. Uh, I mean, the rest, uh, yeah, if you have the idea, the, the formalization step as for most ideas in 
cryptographic protocols. It's just a formality. Hmm. And I know from one session I was participating, was in the audience, it was at the Lendum session, that some other mathematician also pointed out an approach which is equivalent to the... Uh, I think it was in the context of having a truly distributed prover for Planck, and it was about how to do the permutation argument. And somebody pointed mm. out the same thing, the logarithmic derivative approach. Mm. So it was in the air, I suppose, you know. I'm trying to draw the connection, though, between the work you were doing on Fry and recursion to lookups. It seems like a bit of a leap. Was it just like a new area that became interesting to you when you came up with that work? Just happened. Okay. I was just lucky to run over over Benedict's talk on hyperplonk. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's okay. And to That's think, why. It was just trying my own exercise, and then I came with using these logarithmic derivative to prove the Planck permutation invariance argument. Mm. And then I thought, I mean, it's clear. It was just an exercise. But it took me quite a few weeks to discover its usefulness for exactly the situation you often face in the context of CKVMs. Mm. And it is you have a lot of columns. Often it's just a range proof, but they're subject to one and the same table lookup. And exactly this situation is where summing poles is superior over having a grand product argument that needs to involve all these functions, all these columns. And the main reason for this is that grand product arguments they don't scale easily down without increasing algebraic degree. That's a deeper explanation. Whereas some check, they, they just batch without increasing the degree. Mm. And that's the main reason. So actually I was, and, and that's also the main difference between what Flukup was targeting and what my work was targeting. I was exactly targeting this situation back then as Orbis, I think, I don't know how many columns, 16 columns subject to one and the same range, not even range proof. It was more, their CKVM was more along the lines of Bootle and others, the ARIA paper, mm -hmm. 2018, mm -hmm. 19 or something like it. And they were using a sort of uh, this filter-like bit pattern-like decomposition for doing bitwise operations efficiently over the prime field. And these lookups, we had a lot of columns subject to this exactly being of the form, having a zero bit at every even position. How does this work? Like if we look at the history of lookup tables or lookup techniques and evolution of that, like I know that Kulk comes out at some point. Does this, is this like a predecessor to that or is it happening in parallel? Yeah, I'm just curious if it's optimizing in the same direction at all as something like that. It's, it's a different track, or let's say different application. Okay. I mean, the whole, whole line of work triggered by Kalk, which in the end found its highlight with CQ. CQ, yeah. This is something I wouldn't know outside the KZG regime how to do it. It's so specific that you have a commit, where commitment actually is already evaluation at some hidden point. Mm. And it's so specific to KZG and pairings that it's a whole world on its own. Got it. So that line of work is the pairing-focused one, KZG mm. track. Which kind of polynomial commitment scheme then is the logup for? 
or arbitrary actually, but it, uh, therefore, because it looks at the commitment scheme generically, it doesn't make use of any specific properties. Huh. And can it be used? This is actually something I've always been curious about. Can it be used with Fry? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. That's and actually, is, uh, that actually what, what the connection, uh, that's how I met Daniel from Polygon Zero, because I was looking just for other CKVM applications and was asking how many columns uh, for the same range proof or lookup table do you have? Turns mm. out that, uh, don't nail me down on the number, but I think the CKVM of Polygon Zero, oh, I always have to ask again, but it's like it exceeds several dozens of columns, let's mm. say like this. Okay. If it's 80 or even more, depends on the chip design in the yeah. end. And in like this work that you did, so I, I'm sort of seeing the thread here. So like you were, mm. you had done the Fry work, kind of, int- or you, Plonky 2 introduced you to Fry, Starks. Then you were introduced to this lookup stuff and you were like, actually, let's create a lookup Improvement. Lookup was just a side uh, yeah. product. It was but, just a side product. But that could one. be used with Fry. Now my question yeah. is, like, Plonky 2, Plonky 3 is out. Is Plonky 3 incorporating something like this? Plonky 2 already incorporates okay. logup. Uh, I now pretend, uh, I now like to call this logarithmic derivative lookup logup, though I'm not a fan of all these protocol names. Oh, really? Uh, I find them just, useful, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course it's useful to certain kind, but uh, sometimes uh, this name just happened also because I was tired always to saying logarithmic derivative logos, okay, okay. logarithmic derivative logos, logarithmic derivative okay, okay. Logos, and so on, you know? Uh, so yeah. at a certain point it just happened to be lockup. Logo, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so Plonky 2 implemented already logup. Yep. And we're going to have it in Plonky 3 as well. I see. Are you still working? Like, I guess you made this sort of big shift to the logarithmic derivative or the variation that you described that, you know, you you think about it now. But is there any more improvements? Is there any other kind of techniques borrowed maybe from other works that you've been able to incorporate into this? Is that even still something you're working on? That's actually maybe a a first question. Uh, Currently, I mean, not right now. Okay. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, like this was in August, I was happy to work together with Shacha Papini from Starkware. And mm. uh, he was essentially driving this very simple observation that, that came out of our learnings uh, from Lasso and Justin Taller's work on, let's say, multilinear work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of publications in that field. And uh, it's just something that also, something that I was not aware of that these what I always considered as a pre-SNARK protocol, the GKR protocol, the Goldwasser Kalai Road Plume protocol, that this is useful in practice. And it just shows once again my ignorance here uh, because uh, consensus did already did some use to GKR in a similar context. Uh, so the thing is just popped up, okay, just learning, okay, there was this hint, I would rather say, in one of the many protocol variants of Lasso Mm-hmm. The Lasso paper, which was mm-hmm. say uh, you can also do this grant product product argument without committing to the running products using this and that from a quite old paper of of Justin Taller. Right, and and that immediately brought Shacha to the idea. Okay, why don't we do that for logup too? Ah. Mm. And I said, yeah, should should work. Actually, you're right, <laughs> should work. Yeah. And uh, and actually, this improvement is cool from the point of view. 
that you can you can reduce the whole lookup arguments if you have hundreds of columns subject to one and the same table, say one column table, single column table, you can say the only thing you need to commit to as the prover is one additional column. And this carries just the multiplicities of the table entries. That's it. So no additional thing here. I mean, I would need to dive into logup a bit. So in, in logup, you not just commit to the multiplicities of the table entries. You unfortunately you need some helper columns, and these are these are needed to turn a fractional subject it means a subject over fractional uh, expressions. You sum up the poles into a polynomial one. Just a technical thing, actually not nice. You know, you need these helper columns. You need as many as you have columns uh, subject to the lookup. Mm. It was already an improvement over the ground product situation of lookup, but now we can say. Thanks to Shacha, Papini, and GKR, we can completely remove uh, the need of committing to this helper stuff because mm -hmm. we have a protocol that's round by round. It's a multi-round protocol, though, mm -hmm. but still, you don't have to commit anything. You you prove layer by layer the sum of the poles being overall zero. You always normalize the lookup balance as to say that. If you take the poles from the table with the multiplicities and the one from the witnesses, they all need to balance out. Do we pay for this somewhere else? Say, like in the yes. proof size? You not where you pay. Essentially, I mean, let's first uh, look at prover time. Mm -hmm. So you you get rid of the cost of committing, but what it costs, on the other hand, the price you have to pay for it is to run. The GKR protocol, which is a multi-round protocol that in each step, that means let's consider uh, the computation we do is a tree-wise. So consider that the leaf of a binary tree carries all the poles, to make it simple, and you want to add them up, so fractional expressions. So with each in each layer of the tree, you combine two children from the layer below, and add them up. And this is the topology of the circuit you prove. So what you do is you have a layered circuit and you prove, given the inputs which are already determined from what you have committed, you prove the output, the overall pole balance will be zero. Mm -hmm. And that's done layer by layer. And for each layer, you have a multi-linear sum check to be done. I mean, it's a tree. So the layers get half yeah. in size at each level. That's still mm -hmm. fine. But still, it's work because the sum check itself is a multi-round protocol. Mm -hmm. And multi-round protocols, uh, I mean, it costs all this extrapolation effort you have to do in a sum check. It's not for yeah. free, but our operation counts in that paper indicate that it's worth it. The more costly the commitment scheme itself is, measured as a reference in, uh, let's say, to commit one field element, what is the equivalent number of, say, field multiplications to oversimplify the thing here, mm -hmm. then more costly the commitment scheme is, the higher effective is this change. Yeah. Just to clarify, though, what is the name of the work you just described? So this is with Shahar Papini from Starkware. Exactly. Was there other co-authors on this too? No, that was the two of us. Okay. Uh, it's, I don't know what's the, how, how did we call the title? It's, uh, it's improving logarithmic derivative lookups using GKR or something like it. Okay. And short form for this like format, would it be GKR logup? I would say, yes, exactly. GKR logup. 
I think Shahar gave a talk on the topic at ZK Summit 10. Yeah, she did. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was originally under a different title, like yeah. polynomial tricks for Starks or something, and he rug pulled everyone. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It just. I mean, it just happened. You know, uh, yeah. we have a, a we we share a, a, a Telegram group, and it just happened that. Uh, Yeah, it was, I would say, love on the first sight. (laughs) (laughs) Shacha will kill me for this. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to definitely dig up the ZK8 talks that you just mentioned had influenced you. You did a ZK9 talk on LogUp. And then uh, the CK10 talk, we'll try to also dig up so that we can add this to the show notes if people want to dive a little bit more into these in detail. I want to sort of shift a little bit to another topic that Paul had actually suggested we talk about, which is the work on Starks in finite fields. That are not NTT-friendly. That are not NTT-friendly. Let's talk about this work. It seems like, again, a little bit of a shift from lookups, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. How did this work happen? And actually, I guess at this point in your story, by the way, you've joined Polygon Labs, right? Mm, exactly. Okay. When did you join them? Uh, this was almost one year ago. I think okay. in two days, it's one year ago. Okay, okay. So like end so, of 2022. Exactly. So, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first uh, first month, uh, I, I, I was f- just finalizing the log up paper and this thing. But yeah, I think it was essentially Daniel pushing. We should understand uh, the breakdown approach to the tensor PCS approach, which was also... I mean, I, I remember that Orion, that was like 21 even, no? Yeah, I don't want to say anything stupid, but I, I think 21 or 22. Yeah, I think it was autumn 21 or something like this. This was the last publication on that track I had in mind, uh, or we had in mind. We should uh, take a closer look, is this an option? Because, I mean, at that point in time, Polygon Zero was uh, still uh, and still is putting a lot of effort in finalizing the Pipe 1 CKVM based on Plonky 2. Mm. Uh, but Daniel was already, uh, let's say, trying to get an idea. Let's sort out what will be the next generation proof system, what could be. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is, you, you mentioned the paper Orion. Mm-hmm. Um, who is that by? I've quickly looked it up because I always forget the names of the authors. But it's Cha-Cheng Xie, Yu Penzang, and Don Song. Okay. Uh, but coming back to the the predecessor breakdown, you also wrote a summary of this one. Is it in the same line as your summary of Fry, or does it yeah. do more than that? One could say it's 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 of similar character. It was learning about expander codes and mm-hmm. their expander analysis, filtering out the quite succinct chapter on the expander analysis from the breakdown yeah. paper, and my learning process on it. So so essentially, and moreover. It, did some small exercise refinements uh, that have some impact for the target field sizes of Plonky 3, which is uh, 31-bit, in particular the Mesen Prime, that which is our love, I would say. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that brings us nicely to another one of your works on this Mersenne 31 Prime and the, the field that comes with it. Can you tell us more about that? Like what it is, what are the advantages over other small fields that we've seen? Exactly. So, 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 I mean, the whole thing is about next generation proof system from Polygon Zero and the field choice is not an easy thing uh, as field choice goes often with what type of proof architecture or let's say proof system you use and, and so on. Absolutely. 
I mean, as we talked before about breakdown and expanded codes, I mean, this is highly promising track of work for certain situations, I would say, because it's poorly succinct. Mm-hmm. It means uh, it seems like that there is, I would say, a law in proof systems. Everything that that improves proof of speed goes on the cost of the verifier. Yeah. And in a similar way, Breakdown or Orion or now the recent work, the improvements that is done from the Uletana team, Benjamin Diamond and, mm-hmm. uh, and Jim Posen. Binius. Binius, exactly. Uh, so these, uh, these type of proof systems, they have comparable poor succinctness compared to even Fry, though uh, Binius comes, uh, approaches Fry, comes, gets closer down to, and... Uh, but compared to to elliptic world uh, case mm-hmm. where Nico is based, uh, this is like <laughs> incredible huge proof sizes, and yeah. uh, but it's super fast. So coming back to my point, it depends on the application very much where you would choose a breakdown like expander code like, or not even expander code tensor PCS like proof system in the style of breakdown, and. If you combine it with more succinct systems, Fry-based or elliptic curve-based, whatever you like. So for very large instances, and this is also one thing where often, you know, when it comes to multilinear proof systems, as well as expander code in particular, it's so often people use quite incautious manner the word linear time, Mm -hmm. and you think it's better in any situation. It's not necessarily. As in... Because we are paying in proof size, saying linear time is not so... Not even practically. Okay. This is oh, asymptotically right. is linear time. Yeah, If you use expander code base, mm-hmm. uh, linear time, uh, that's even even here quite dif- difficult. Let's say right. even breakdown is linear time only under certain, under the assumption that your field in the whole snark needs to grow with mm. the circuit size anyway, because it does a lookup argument or permutation argument. Right. And for that, you need field need, need to be large enough right. to encode, to host the zeros or the poles, whatever technique you use for that. Mm. Is this something that Binius addresses? This idea of like towers of fields and you can keep making them bigger and bigger as you go? Mm, that's a different thing with okay. Binius. So asymptotically, also Binius would need to, the fields which serve soundness which is like at least a one to eight bit large field. Mm-hmm. These fields need to grow with circuit sizes. Okay. I mean, and maybe better to clarify here. So the term linear time is often used in a quite loose notion. But actually, besides that, that's often something that is said to be a linear time prover, which in a stricter sense isn't linear time. Much more than that, it's about practical performance. And often, at, le- at least to, to, to my understanding, it depends very much over which field and which concrete setup of the expander code is linear time encoding. We observed that if you use classical Ritz-Solomon encoding, mm-hmm. that the break-even point, say with a breakdown-like expander code, is at a quite large message size. Don't nail me down, but something like... 2 to the 20 field elements for the MSM31 or something like that. We're saying our circuits need to be of size 2 to the 20 for it to be worth it? The message sizes you encode 
So that's even, again, a different thing if you look at tensor code. Right. So it's some multiple of the circuit size. It, it's a fraction of it if a you fraction. use the square okay. root uh, re reductions. So typically, it's like, uh, depends on how you lay out your reduction step. There is some optimum ratio between width and height of the trace, or, or let's say of the reduction step that is done, or the, the interleaved encoder, or the tensor dimension. Uh, so there's a sweet spot, which I can't remember uh, where it is. It's not the square root, the symmetric square root case, where it's square root in width, square root in height. Okay. And maybe I would need to look, double check here where the break-even bound with Ritz-Solomon encoder was. Maybe it's 2 to the 18 or something like this, but uh, mm -hmm. it was unexpected high. So that actually brought us again back to, to Ritz-Solomon with the M31. And, and we were exploring, uh, Daniel, Jackie, and, and I, we, we did explore about uh, what, what can we do? Maybe just even ordinary approaches using the smoothness of the multiplicative group of the Mersenne 31, which is not absolutely non-smooth. It's not entity-friendly mm -hmm. in the best sense, but there are small prime factors three, five, seven, I think even 11. Uh, I don't know it by heart. Mm -hmm. But we were exploring, trying to find out using with different radiuses in the FFT and, and certain improvements on how to treat large radiuses, like we were looking into radar algorithm and likewise. So a lot of FFT stuff. I still don't understand what Marsen 31 is, yeah. though. Is it something you made? Is it a paper? Is it a technique? Mm, no, Marsen it's just a certain prime number, which seems to be for standard CPU architectures extremely friendly. Or okay. For it's a particular a, number. Exactly. It's 2 to the 31 minus 1. Okay. This is prime. Not every, like if you take 2 to the 30 minus 1, that's it won't not do this prime. Thing. Okay. So some, hmm. there are, few, there are few, few powers of 2 minus 1, which are prime. Mm -hmm. 2 to the 17 minus 1, 2 to the 31 minus 1. And is this then the number of the field that you That's choose, kind of? Exactly. And then you construct things around it. Exactly. So okay. if you look at entity-friendly fields like Goldilocks Baby or Bear, Baby Bear mm -hmm. wonderful name, I love it. <laughs> They're always of the form... I think it's sometimes called pseudomersen. So they're like two to the some high power, which is the field size essentially, like two to the thirty-one or mm -hmm. two to the sixty-four in the sense of Goldilocks. And these are NTT friendly. Those are NTT yeah, they're friendly. a few bits set. Yeah. In their binary representation, which actually there is a whole classical track of work that comes uh, exactly speeding up computations. And even if you look at standards of primes for elliptic curves, old mm. standards, they use uh, typically use exactly primes that have such a similar structure. Either you have few bits set, it's like two to the some power minus two to the uh, another power and so on. And uh, just few bits set because that eases mm. arithmetics, that eases modular reduction. And the most radical ease you can have here is having a prime that is just 2 to the 31 minus mm. 1 and nothing in between. Okay, but that that you just described, that is not NTT friendly, or it is? Not as Goldilocks, not as Baby Bear. Not as friendly as these, okay. 
much less friendly. Yeah. I know we've actually covered this on the show, I think in like the hardware episodes. I might have even done it on the episode we did last week with Binius. Like, I don't know. But the NTT friendly, I kind of don't remember what that is at all. So can we actually define? <laughs> we probably should have done it before asking the question. But like, why do we want it to be NTT friendly? What does that do? NTT or F FFT friendly. I, I prefer even to say FFT, fast Fourier transform. Friendly. That's okay. extremely helpful for polynomial arithmetics. Mm. I mean, all the snarks, starks, they use what I like to call the snark principle. They have polynomial IOPs. So you encode the witness data into polynomials. Mm -hmm. You rephrase your target which is to prove certain constraints on the witnesses. Uh, you translate it into the language of their polynomials, which carry the information. And the nice thing with polynomials and relational polynomials, called them polynomial identities, is that you can test them probabilistically, often just at a single point. And that makes the proof succinct, because mm -hmm. instead of checking something where you would need to compute on, on full-length polynomials, length 1 million or even beyond. Yeah, here you just, you get a shortcut, it sounds you like. You just test the one. your target identity, mm -hmm. which is equivalent to the initial goal at okay. one or few points. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that brings us to polynomial IOPs, as it's called, because all, all the snarks and starks are essentially built from polynomial IOPs. This is just the underlying principle of the proof. How okay. do you encode into polynomials and how mm -hmm. do you rephrase your target goal into polynomial language? Like, so why with Binius, the like reduction of the field, does it make it less NTT friendly or more NTT friendly? I didn't get the connection uh, with Binius. Uh, can you repeat the question? So they, they take it down to a binary field, right? To like, they make it a very small field. So does that make... The, the system more or less NTT friendly? Binary fields is a different world. Okay. Uh, for other reasons, I will return to that question. Let me first say, let us revisit why FFT is useful. It's for polynom fast polynomial arithmetics. Mm -hmm. And there are two options. You either have a field that has a cyclic multiplicative group, which is large enough, and this group is the one where you do FFT or NTT. Okay. So either you have a field that has a, a multiplicative subgroup, which is smooth enough, nice enough to do FFT, or you have a binary field. Okay. Ah. The binary field, uh, since 2014, you have a quite efficient analogon of the FFT there, which is called the additive FFT. But you would do something else then. It's like you, you're not trying to get the binary field NNTT friendly. You're, you're just using a different kind of FFT. Exactly. No. So let's say binary fields per se are NTT friendly. Mm -hmm. It's a bit hidden. Uh, so when you mention that Binius went down to bit, bits fields, that's not the field where they do their FFT. I see. Okay, there's two sides then. There's the binary field. They use one okay, in okay. between. I think it's it's the 16-bit field, that they, which is for their application, the sweet spot. And they use this 16-bit field and they do Ritz-Solomon encoding, okay. which is FFT-based mm -hmm. or additive FFT-based to be right, uh, to be concrete mm -hmm. here. 
The problem with the mesensory one over baby bear or even GF2 to the 16, which is the Binius with Solomon alphabet field, is that it's not a binary field. So can't use uh, binary, uh, the additive FT, but its multiplicative group is not as smooth as wished, like with baby bear or, mm. or Goldilocks. So that uh, was just an open question to us. Is it useful, this prime? Could we, can we do something with this prime? So I guess the question is, how do you get around that? And is it useful? The funny thing is, yeah, we can get around. And this just happened, you know, when we were exploring all this classical FFT stuff, from starting with Raiders algorithm for the larger primes in our multiplicative subgroup. And just happened that I was thinking about why not just going to the complex numbers. Mm -hmm. the complex extension, what I mean, just the degree two extension, because mesen prime minus one is not a square root. Yep. In other words, x squared plus one doesn't have a root over the mesen field. And therefore, you can just invent your imaginary unit. You can mm -hmm. extend the mesen like you do in calculus, going from the real to the complex number. You extend the mesen as 31 to its degree two extension, the complex extension. The funny thing is that this behaves very much like... Yeah. So does that behave like a FFT-friendly field, the extension? Yes, Beautiful. exactly. Thanks for for helping me out here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so this is in contrast to... Base field M31, which is short for the MSN31, its quadratic extension is highly smooth. Mm. It allows multiplicative subgroup up to order 2 to the 31. Mm -hmm. Because P squared, what's the yep. size of the field? If P is the MSN prime, the size of the field is P yeah. squared. Its multiplicative group is P squared minus 1, and that factors into P minus 1 times P plus 1. And P yeah. plus 1 is the sweet factor here. Wonderful. I guess maybe taking a step back from these explorations of breakdown and multilinear land and explorations of different fields, what's the recipe for Plunky 3 that you settled on? That we settled on? Uh, if there is a recipe that settled on, I'm not sure what the stage of the project is. It's still not fully converged. One thing, as I understand also from Daniel, it should be a repository that is more modular than Plonky 2. Therefore, it will support not just a single proof system and also not just a single field. But with the M31, the Mersenne FFT, as we like to call it, going to the complex extension is, is one of the things we're working on. Very curious to see, yeah, benchmarks when, when they're out. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, in the end, it's... It, Exactly. So maybe one thing that I didn't point out, what's the usefulness, because you can always go to extension fields to be FFT friendly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the thing is with the M31 going to the complex extension, there is a bulk of well-known optimization just from classical signal processing that makes the complex FFT of real data, of real valued data efficient. And in the same way, all these techniques apply to that case of M31 either. That means even though you go to an extension, in this case, it only a degree two extension, but still it's an extension, in FFT cost, you don't pay much compared to as if it, you had a native FFT, not much more. It's a, a, in a number of multiplications, even equivalent. So correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to say this in my own words, I guess from my own understanding, if you have this prime field 
that is not entity friendly. You do your entities in the extension, but luckily enough, the cost is you don't really pay for extending. Exactly. Or you don't pay too much for extending. Just very okay. few. Hmm. Oh. So, so we expect if we have optimized everything down and do a fair comparison with an equally sized FFT-friendly field mm-hmm. like Baby Bear, that we will be in FFT of same speed. When it comes to commit read Solomon encoding, we can do also a trick, and that's actually, let's say, the other result of that Mersenne FFT paper mm-hmm. over the circle group, as we call it, or over the unit circle, I think, yeah. uh, is that you can also, if you look closer, and it's just a simple calculation using FFT Fourier series in the end, uh, if you look at the the extrapolated values, that they can be rectified in other, it's a sort of, it's like polar coordinates. A complex number can be written just as radius times the angle. Mm-hmm. If you know what the angle is, you can just uh, say mm. it's just the radius is the thing that counts. And something similar happens to the extension of real value data over the trace to another domain, which is the Fry domain or the Reed solomon evaluation domain. I need to ask something. So you mentioned yeah. this M31 paper. Is it a paper? Is there work? This is I, this is a write-up on, uh, I mean, everything that uh, a publisher would like or rather call a write-up. A write-up. Okay, so uh, this is so another summary of, is this in the summary of breakdown or is this a summary no, no, of this is, something this is else? No, this is a separate one. Uh, okay, I okay. think, uh, let me see what the Reed name Solomon is. Solomon codes over the circle group. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, cool. Read Solomon codes over the circle group. Yeah, well, we'll try to add this as well. I think we're near the end of our interview and I want to mm. understand what you're working on now. I'm almost curious, like now, what will you be presenting at potentially future ZK summits? But yeah, what what is the, like, we were sort of talking about Plonky 3. Would you say that's the focus of your work? Is there other kind of... It's 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 Plonky Plonky 3. Okay. Has to do with M31. It incorporates all this stuff, I guess. All these concrete things you meet. Yeah. When thinking about fields and proofs. Cool. There's some ongoing work with Starkware, which, again with Shacha and David. I'm not afraid I'm not allowed to say what it is about, but that okay. will be a CK10, uh, CK11, is it not? Yeah, yeah, the that's next the next one. one. Mm-hmm. That would be a CK11 topic. Cool. I guess uh, from the hints you've given so far, if we're looking at FFT-friendly fields, you were still in univariate polynomials? It's still univariate, yeah. Okay, interesting. Huh. It's an improvement over over the work that we opened up with the M31 uh, mm-hmm. circle group thing. Nice. And should be ready soon. Cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, I can I can maybe make a little announcement here. This is like our, potentially our last episode of the year, one of our last episodes of the year. But ZK Summit 11, Ulrich, I don't know if you know this, but we're, uh, we have a date set really? for April 10th in Athens. Cool. So this is our current plan. I love Essence. Yeah. So people should mark their calendar. We're going to open applications in the new year for talks. Um, Mm. Just so I don't know if people are familiar with how we do ZK Summits, but we actually have a selection committee. We get our talks through application. Mm -hmm. So it's not sponsored talks like other conferences. So, yeah, it's a a separation there. So we're going to be opening that up in January. And we also do an application cool. form to attend. So if people want to attend, they should also fill out the application form. It's often limited space. So yeah, 
Maybe we should ask them to explain Mercent 31 to a friend. <laughs> yeah, we usually pick a question. <laughs> that seems really in the weeds. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe something. Actually, Ulrich, I, I have Oops, one more I would, question. I would, I, would, I, would, I would choose a more... A more but actually, Ulrich, when you saw the Binius work, did that change in a way the direction you were going? Like, is this a pivot moment for your work, for the work of your team? Not sure. Uh, uh, it definitely puts also binary provers again on the plate, maybe even for classical CPU ar architectures. Mm -hmm. But it has to be understood, the concrete performance mm -hmm. on these architecture, not talking about hardware. For hardware, I think. It's great. But, uh, yeah. it's, it's the way to go. Yeah. Uh, for CPU architectures, we'll see in the end which is more performant. And in the end, you know, it, it's so extremely hard to make fair comparisons between proof systems, even different fields, because it, uh, you mixture not just the proof system itself in its performance, uh, it depends on the application, on the way you arithmetize mm -hmm. and so on. There are so many... And what task is it you ask people to do? Like there's, yeah, benchmarks are hard. <laughs> yeah, extremely hard, extremely hard. I remember benchmarks, I think even back to my Martin learning times, Benchmarks that I think in the Marlin paper, which if you look at the code, did the benchmark was setting up an example rank one CS circuit that did not capture what it should capture actually in terms of performance. I think it even was very much in favor to growth 16. Right. To the very, very specific pro uh, uh, structure of that sample circuit. Uh, so actually it picked Marlin in a much less in favor of Marlin back then, mm. actually. And so, so it's ex long story, story short, it's extremely hard, first of all, to make meaningful benches that, that capture really the, the generic case. And the second is to make fair comparison between different proof system with different construction, different field sizes and so on. It's, mm. it's super. This uh, is a challenge. Super hard. I personally, if I may say something here, what, what I would like to have just from the entire community that is working on, I mean, it's a super high, uh, vibrant field. But in general, what would make me much more happy is less advertisement of benchmarks that are not either hard to reproduce. But, I mean, in any case, it's, oft, it's always a contribution. That's not the thing. But when it comes to benchmark and advertising, I don't know, maybe it's just me who gets older. No, I agree with you. We see too many papers that show a table mm. which in which the columns you know, of the table are chosen in a way that their performance is going to be better everywhere. Yeah. Mm. And it's not always true. There's always, most of the time, there is a trade-off. And mm. I, I see more value in papers that show you those columns where they are worse. Mm. Because now I get to compare fairly. I get mm. to get a sense of the trade-off space. Yeah, it seems there's currently a culture of uh, advertisement, uh, yeah. which I don't like too much, actually. I mean, we're but in a weird space where our research is partly academic, partly <laughs> marketing, industry. right? Yeah. yeah, but it not just comes from uh, from from industry; it also in mm. academia, also in academia. Mm. I know there's there are a few groups that are kind of like chain agnostic 
project agnostic, like academic groups that are just focused on benchmarks but don't actually have something they're trying to optimize or like at least mm. like optically show is better. So hopefully there's more work like that coming out where people are just observing actually doing benchmarks where yeah. potentially they could show these different sides. Reproducibility would be one thing, but for, for the field we're working in, is that's not the only thing. It's, it's really just, it's so hard to compare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for certain situations, just look at the breakdown type proof system versus more succinct. It depends on the use case. Yeah, that's totally fair. Cool. Ulrich, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us all of the work you've been doing. I think your journey from like teacher to, you know, one of the authors on many of these works and like kind of pushing the field. This is very cool and hopefully inspirational to people. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Ulrich, and thanks for all the explanations. Thanks for having me. I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.